Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Genesis chapter 46 on either page 30 or 39, depending on which, which copy. Same translation, just different, different copies of the same Bible there. And you're welcome to keep that Bible. If you do not have a Bible, we would love for you to, to take that Bible as your own, read it, come back, and uh, just expose your heart and your mind to God's Word. So as you're finding Genesis 46, we're going to cover two chapters today, and then next week, I'm a little sad, Genesis has been like, like a friend to us this past year or so as we've been working through all 50 chapters of this first an incredibly important first book of the Bible. We will end next week in uh, Genesis 48, 49, and 50. And then the plan is for us to do a few individual messages. And then uh, I'm going to be gone in June for a couple weeks. A few of the other guys will preach individual messages. And then mid-June, a very likely, I think we will start a shorter message series through First Thessalonians which is a wonderful utility drawer of the Christian life. It touches on a lot of different topics, and for a good part of the summer, we'll be working through 1 Thessalonians, I think. Don't hold me to that, but I think that's the direction we're going. As you're finding Genesis chapter 46, let me mention, let me just tag on to what Wayne said uh, a little while ago about the one another meeting, and then Springer mentioned it as well, that Logan will be sharing this evening. I really encourage you to come tonight. There's a couple reasons why. First, certainly to hear from Logan and to be encouraged about the work of the Lord and across the world. Secondly, uh, if there's one thing, we, we started this little redemptive project called Crosspoint 10 years ago uh, with a very small group of people. The Lord has been incredibly gracious. As I look back on the life of our church and I look back even on my leadership, one deficit, I think, and I, I trace it to myself, is that I think that we as a church, do not spend enough time together praying together. And I hope that we can remedy that in the future. One thing that we're going to do tonight is to pray for our nation, to pray for this very important uh, case before the Supreme Court, to pray for the nations. And so I, if you're a member of Crosspoint and you've never been to one of our member meetings, we do these six times a year, I, I'm just really asking you to come tonight. And if you're not a member and you're kind of becoming part of Crosspoint, this is becoming home for you. I'd love for you to come as well. In addition to praying, we will be uh, considering and talking about a, a pretty important matter that we need to discuss as a, as a church to, to really uh, care for the life of our church. And so I, I want you to come and to hear that if you're a member. That would be important for you to be here. But now we turn our attention to, uh, to God's Word. And as we do that... Uh, let me just recap where we have been up to this point. I think it's helpful, especially if you maybe are here for the first time, just to give you an orientation of how we have got to Genesis chapter 46. So, of course, Genesis is the book of beginnings. God creates a world, not just good, but very good. And he creates mankind, Adam and Eve, our first parents, as the pinnacle of his creation to be the stewards of his glory but they willingly, not as a surprise to God, but part of his mysterious providential plan, they willingly rebel against God and reject his sufficiency and goodness and are expelled from the garden, from being with God in beautiful fellowship. And they sinned. They rebelled against God. And that brought with it terrible consequences that polluted everything about them. And we, 
as, as coming from that first fountain, that source of Adam and Eve, our first parents, we carry with us that, that pollution, that sin nature that we inherit from our first parents. And, and that's what happens. The, the world begins to progress and civilization begins to spread. Mankind begins to populate the earth, having been expelled from God's uh, presence in the garden. And God doesn't leave creation just spinning out of control. He comes down and breaks into the madness and he, he by his grace, he calls out one man, Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I am going to, through you, build another family. I'm going to build and restore the creation and the paradise that was lost. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make a nation through you. I'm going to make a family through you, and you're going to populate the earth, and the nation and the family that will come through you will be my mouthpiece and will be my display to a lost world and will call them to turn and be part of the new world that I will recreate as this world has been lost. And so he does that through Abraham and he forms this family. But we see that that doesn't happen right away. There's trials and difficulties and lack of faith and Abraham and his wife try and, you know, kind of do it on their own way and have children by their own plan. And God, by his grace, gives Abraham this child, finally in his old age, Isaac, and, and he brings this child of promise. And there's problems again. And God then gives a child to Isaac. And he, his name is Jacob. And he's the, the patriarch, the father that we've been following in these, these last few chapters of, of Genesis. And Jacob has sons. And boy, they don't seem to be doing well. They are an absolute mess. And in fact, one of their youngest brothers, Joseph, they sell him into slavery unjustly. And then Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt. And in Egypt, he's falsely accused by his master's wife of trying to you know, assault her. And then Joseph is thrown into prison, and he's, he's in prison, and he's forgotten by these two prison mates, and one of them who gets out, who he interpreted a dream for, and he's unjustly forgotten by this prison mate. But finally, God has arranged all of these things so that this prison mate of Joseph would be before Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, and would... Uh, need to interpret a dream, and he couldn't interpret it. And so he says, oh, I had this guy in prison with me, this Hebrew slave, Joseph, who interpreted my dream that came true. And so that puts Joseph in a position where he then is before the ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh. And he rightly interprets this dream that Pharaoh had about a famine that would hit the land. And he then not only interprets the dream, but he has a plan on how Pharaoh can organize Egypt to spare Egypt from this famine. And so Joseph goes from being a slave and a prisoner to being the second in command, the governor of Egypt. And he is in place there as the, 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 the ruler, the, the steward of Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's kingdom there. And he rescues Egypt from this famine that hits by his wise administration of storing up food in the prosperous years so that they have enough when the lean years come. And this famine doesn't just hit Egypt, remember, Joseph left his family. He was sold into slavery. And so his family, Jacob, and this family that God would make through whom he would bless all the world is also starving. And now these brothers who sold Joseph into slavery are now forced because of the famine to go to Egypt looking and begging for food. And the brother that they had betrayed 20 years before is now in this position to receive them. They didn't recognize him at first. But he is now in a position 
to bless them and to feed them. And there's this reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. And he gives them, instead of judgment, he gives them grace. Joseph becomes this wonderful picture, even of Christ, our brother, who saves us, who goes before us and saves us in our famine and becomes and stores up bread, really the bread of his own body to be broken on the cross. And so we ended off last week looking at how Joseph gives mercy to his brothers and is saving his family through providing food for them. And where we are this morning in 46 and 47 is now the brothers have gone back to to Canaan and they're going to bring their father. Jacob wants to see Jacob before he is he passes away in his old age. And so we're coming to the end of this story of God's salvation and preservation of his people. So here's the handles I want us to hold on to. We're going to look at two things. We're going to look at God's plan and God's promise. God's plan and God's promise. If you're a note taker, you can write that down. You can just kind of hold on to those two handlebars. And as we work through these two chapters, we won't read all of it, but we'll read a good chunk of these two chapters. We'll be looking at God's plan and God's promise. And then, as is our custom on the first Sunday of every month, we'll gather together around the Lord's table. Or if you're a Christian, you're welcome to come to this table and receive communion and remember uh, not just bread from Egypt, grain from Egypt, but the bread of life, Christ himself. So let me pray, and then let's read. Father, as we, as we come to your word now, I pray that you would show us wonderful things from your law, from your word. I pray that you would stir our affections, that you would help us worship you more rightly, that Christians in this room would see the beauty of your providence and sovereign grace in Christ. And how you say, not just to Jacob, but to your people, do not be afraid. I will go with you. Let that encourage us and embolden us for the life that we are living even now. And I pray for unbelievers that are gathered in this room that you would open their eyes, that Jesus and your work through him would be so beautiful and irresistible that that it would melt their hard hearts and that they would look and see and trust in Christ. I pray that you'd help us with these things now as we think about your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's read Genesis chapter 46, verse 1. Friends, we've been together for 10 years now. When we started this church, I was a energetic, mid-30-year-old, spry, full of energy, whippersnapper. It's been 10 years, and I can't see anymore. <laughs> During my prayer, I was wondering if I was going to have to do it, and I, this is the first, here we are beginning a new phase in our life together, friends. All right. All right. <laughs> Glory. I was telling Reynolds earlier, I don't know if I'm going to do it. I can't see, but I've got to work on the rotation off and on. He's the master. He's going to give me classes later. <laughs> Verse 1, chapter 46. So Israel, the writer again, Moses, writing this years later, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, at this point in Genesis, was referring to Jacob by his new name, Israel. It'll go back and forth. So Israel, or Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. 
Then he said, listen to these next few verses. This is really the, the heart of these chapters, I think. God saying these words to Jacob. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry them. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. And so Jacob is packing up everybody, and they're this huge caravan down to Egypt. And then verses 8 through 26 are just a a genealogy, just a listing out of the names of Jacob and his sons and their children that come from them. Certainly would be worthy for us to read, but for time's sake, let's skip to verse 27. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Verse 28, he sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph. Remember Judah, remember wicked Judah. Judah, the most unlikely of the brothers, that God worked a work of grace in his life that last week we saw that Judah, who is the worst of the brothers, now was offering himself as a substitute, even a picture of what Christ would do centuries later on, on the cross. Judah, the brother that was so wicked, is now the representative of the father to Pharaoh. And he sent Judah, Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to show Joseph, to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Can you imagine the intensity of that reunion? Jacob, who once thought that Joseph was dead, now they're reuniting. Joseph is falling on his father's neck and weeping. And it's interesting there that it says that Jacob isn't weeping. Just, I'm sure he was, just his heart leapt with joy. But it's almost like Jacob's life had been so weathered and rough and full of turmoil that he, you know, he didn't even have any tears left. It mentions that only Joseph cried. Not to say that Jacob was you know, not feeling that, but he was an old man who was absolutely spent. Verse 30, Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. Verse 33. Joseph's going to give instruction to his brothers now. He says, When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, but we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So what's going on there is that Joseph knows that his brothers are country folk, right? And he is wanting to arrange for them to have a particular good lot of land in the land of Egypt, this land of Goshen, which would be perfect for them. And he doesn't want them to be before Pharaoh and for Pharaoh 
to, in his desire to treat Joseph's family well, say, yeah, come, kind of come live in the city and be around us because he knew his brothers and he knew that eventually that would not go well. So he says, all right, just let them know that you're shepherds because that's what you really are. Egyptians don't like shepherds. And so Pharaoh will still be gracious to you, but he's going to say, you know, okay, stay out, stay out kind of outside the city limits in this place that will be perfect for you. So Joseph is showing his wisdom even in how he's telling his brothers to speak to Pharaoh. Verse 47. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. Verse 2. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Now that's kind of interesting, isn't it? He had or 12 brothers, so he would have had 11 brothers. He only took five of them. Kind of see what's going on there? I mean, he took five. We all got a crazy uncle, right? I mean, you know, when you're, you're introducing your family and you're like, oh, well, ah. I can imagine that sort of, you know, picking out the five brothers and you kind of do it on the sly and then all of a sudden the six brothers who didn't get picked kind of wonder, hey, where, where's Joseph? And, oh, they, yeah, no, we're just going somewhere. No, we'll be back soon. No, you guys just chill out. We'll be back. <laughs> I wonder who those five were and who the six knuckleheads that didn't get to be part of that party were. Verse 3, Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there's no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Oh, God is showing such favor to Joseph's family. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know of any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. That's unusual. Usually the greater would bless the lesser. And certainly Pharaoh is more powerful in this situation. But it says that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now that's interesting. And I think what's happening is through the writer Moses, centuries later, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God is showing Israel as they're reading this. He said, despite how least and how downtrodden you are, even as you stand before kings and pharaohs, know that the God of the universe is intending to, through you, weak Israel, bless the nations. And that's written in there to be an encouragement to Israel, to be an encouragement to the church, that we stand before the principalities and powers of our age, and God intends to, through us, bless the world, just as he promised to Abraham years before. So, Jacob, Israel, blesses Pharaoh. Verse 8, And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob, he looked old and beat up. He's like, Bro, how old are you? Verse, <laughs> verse, verse 8, And, and Pharaoh, said to ja uh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, verse 9, The days of the years of my sojournings are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. I mean, think about the things that were going through Jacob's mind, probably remembering when he tricked his brother Esau, when uh, his, his sons were wicked and destroyed that whole, whole village in the dispute over their sister, and looking even at, at the sorrow that he's been fe feeling for 20 years, thinking that his son Jacob was dead. Verse 10, And Jacob blessed Pharaoh 
again and went from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Okay, now then in verses 13 through 26, there's this scene where the famine is so severe. So what's happened is Jacob's family has come and has received this really prime piece of real estate from Pharaoh. They're set up. They have the best of the land. Joseph is providing for them. Now the Egyptians themselves are feeling the pinch of the famine, and they're going to begin to starve. And what happens in verses 13 through 26 is Joseph wisely administrates and feeds and blesses the nation of Egypt in their hunger and sets up this system where he gives them livestock and then he gives them seed and then they owe a fifth of all of their proceeds from their flocks to to the Pharaoh. And so Joseph again is acting wisely and even blessing uh, Egypt in, in his administration. Then, and we end with the last few verses of verse 47, or chapter 47, starting in verse 27. It says, Thus Israel, meaning Jacob and his family, settled in the land of Egypt in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied, multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. I know that sounds awkward to us, but that was just a way of physically confirming an oath in their day. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. It was very important to Jacob that in his death, his bones rest in the land where his fathers were buried, the land that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants. In verse 31, and he said, swear to me, and he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. And next week we'll read about how Jacob, before he dies, blesses his children and how all of this has worked for God's glory in the lives of his people. So I want us to look now briefly before we come to the Lord's table, to look at God's plan and God's promise to his people. First, God's plan. God's plan and purpose has been from the beginning to dwell with a people, to to be with his people, Adam and Eve primarily, in the garden. And they rebelled, not as a surprise to God, but God in his infinite wisdom and providential plan has created a people to be with him. His first people lost that privilege. And then early on in Genesis, we read where God through Abraham covenanted with one man. And he said, through this man, through you, Abraham, I'm going to make a people and I will be your God. I will bless you. And through you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. So here's what I want us to see is that God's plan has always been to be with a people, to bless them, to not just be a distant creator, but to be a father. And now at the end of Genesis, we're wondering whether or not God is going to accomplish this. Is this going to happen? And he's calling Jacob now 
Now that he's in the land of Canaan, where God had promised him that he and his family and his forefathers would dwell, he's now saying, go to Egypt. And Jacob may have had doubts about whether or not he should have gone to Egypt, but God is reassuring Jacob in this dream. He's saying, go to Egypt. Do not be afraid. Even though this seems like a detour of the plan that you originally thought that Abraham and Isaac would and then you would fulfill, go to Egypt. Because remember the promise that God had with Abraham and his family. He said, I will give you this land, and I will be your God. And through you, I will bless and multiply and populate the earth. And through the family that I will create through you, I will then bless all the nations of the earth. And now, at the end of his life, Jacob is finding that he's going to have to flee this land that God had told his forefathers and him to be in in order to survive. And so Jacob is understandably maybe doubting whether or not he should go to Egypt. And God shows up to Jacob or Israel in a dream and he says to him, go to Egypt. Don't be afraid. I will be with you there and I will bring you back to this land. Even in your death, your, ba- your bones will rest in here, in this land that I have given to you. I want us to see here that God has had a plan from the beginning, and part of God's plan is to even use the exodus to Egypt and the captivity that God's people will find themselves in just a few Uh, chapters when we get into Exodus. We're not going into Exodus after this, but this is all part of God's plan. If you you have your Bible open to Genesis 46 and 47, just flip a couple pages over to Exodus chapter 1. Look what happens in just a few years. So God's people are rescued. They go down to Egypt. They're fed. And then they go from this position of favor and blessing because of Joseph's leadership to becoming slaves. So in Exodus chapter 1, just a few years later, Joseph dies. And in verse 7, it says that the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. So we might now be wondering, okay, God had promised to recreate a new family through Abraham. And he said, I'm going to give you a place, and I'm going to give you blessing, and I'm going to give you offspring, and through you in this place, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. But by the end of the first book of the Bible, they're out of the place, slaves. How is this going to happen? Is this part of God's plan? Well, guess what? Exodus 1 did not surprise God. All the way back in Genesis 15, listen to what God says to Abraham when he makes a covenant with him. Remember when he made him fall asleep and then he cut open the carcass of this animal and this smoking fire pot, which symbolized God's presence, goes through the, the middle of this 
animal that had been split and he makes a covenant with Abraham and makes him a promise. Listen to what God says. Oh, by the way, this is going to happen to you. And Abraham's still kind of coming out of slumber. You know, he's like, what? 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 I mean, what happened? And listen to what God says about what Israel is about to experience. Genesis 15, decades and decades before. Genesis 15, verse 13 and 14. 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So at the end of Genesis and then the beginning of Exodus, when we see God's people, because of famine, being moved away from the place that God called them and gave them into a place of refuge and safety and then moving into a place of being slaves and hardship, friends, none of this surprised God. This was part of God's plan. In Genesis 15, he promises Abraham all of this this blessing and this land and this offspring. And oh, by the way, for 400 years, your offspring are going to be captive and slaves. And then I'm going to bring them back to this place. Friends, what's the application for us is that nothing, nothing that happened to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Israel or the church in the New Testament or you and me surprises God. Nothing happens that surprises God. In fact, in some strange, mysterious, often, in fact, almost always hidden way to us, God is superintending the history of the earth and the very details of the lives of his people for the maximum supreme display of his glory. And that's what he's doing. In, and friends, I listen. I am well aware of the fact that we mention that just about every Sunday. And you say, I mean, remember I told you I feel like the circus clown who the only act he's got is he just crawls in the cannon, they light the wick, and boom, he gets shot out of the cannon. And then he's got black soot all over him, and he crawls back in the cannon. A couple more, he dry, boom, shoot him out of the cannon. It just seems like that's the theme of Genesis. God is good, creation is jacked up, but God has a plan to glorify himself through making a family, a new family for himself. And then we say it again Sunday after Sunday. Maybe we need to hear it more than once, right? Nothing surprises God. So even tonight when we gather to pray about the wickedness that's happening in our nation and across the world, friends, we are not people that are wringing our hands wondering if God is somehow now impotent after centuries of acting. No, we are people who know that God has a plan and is superintending human history and who, as Ephesians 1, 11 says, is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And then we're going to grab these 30,000 foot beautiful truths and promises and we're going to reach down and put them into the just the muck and the mire of our lives and say, if this is true on a huge level, it's true on a minute level as well. And as David says in Psalm 139, there's not one day of my life that was not written down in his book before one of them came to be. God has a plan for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the nation that would flow from them. He has a plan for the church. He has a plan even for you and I in our very small lives. And friends, this should bring us incredible comforts. Listen to what 
the psalmist says in Psalm 73. The first part of Psalm 73 is, is the psalmist lamenting how jacked up the world is and how wicked people seem to prosper and how evil people are triumphing over him. And then he gets to this place in the midway through the psalm. And by the way, I, you know, I love the fact that the psalm is full of unhappy followers of God. That's one weird thing about church culture. It's like you have to be happy all the time. And we need to have a space for lament. I mean, there's a book in the Bible called Lamentations, right? And, but there's this weird little kind of fake false pressure in the American church where you've got to come in and you've got to be happy and everything's got to be awesome. I think someday we should just sing Psalm 13. How long, oh God, will you forget me forever? Happy Sunday to you, boys and girls. <laughs> but God's giving, he's validating the brokenness of humanity. And he's writing through the psalmist. And listen to what this psalmist says midway through after lamenting the brokenness of the world around him. He says, when I thought how to understand this in verse 16, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. In other words, I don't understand all of why God is doing what he's doing, but there is this beautiful, sovereign plan of God that he is working all things together for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. And then in verse 23, I love this, these would be three, four verses to memorize. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, verse 23. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, the psalmist says. God has a plan, and very likely it doesn't include the fulfillment of our 80-year American dream, but it's so much more glorious and so much more satisfying. And God is superintending human history. He's superintending the lives of the patriarchs. He's superintending the lives of the nation that he brought into being. He's superintending the church, and he's superintending even you and me and our lives for his glory and his good if you are trusting in Christ. So God has a plan. And then secondly, and we end with this, I want us to see then God's personal, fatherly promise to Jacob or Israel in all of this. Back to the beginning of, verse, of chapter 46, verses 3 and 4. In this dream, he woke Jacob up and he said in the midst of his doubt, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So in the midst of this difficulty and doubt that Jacob finds himself in, God says to him, don't be afraid. I will go with you, and I will bring you back home. Don't be afraid. I will go with you, and I will bring you back home. Uh, a New Testament, a really biblical scholar that um, I 
very much respect. He's an old British guy, but he's actually alive. I know you were going to think I was going to say Spurgeon, not him. This guy's in his 90s. His his name is J.I. Packer. Wrote the classic book, Knowing God, which Ron Mullins taught a Sunday morning class on it a few, uh, about a year ago or so. If you haven't read that book, we have it in the resource room. I encourage you to pick it up. J.I. Packer summarizes the New Testament and really the whole Bible with this phrase that the whole Bible, the plan of God, is about adoption through propitiation. What does that mean? Adoption through propitiation. It means that God is making a people for himself, adopting them. He's becoming a father to a group of people who he will open up their hearts to trust him. He is making a people, recreating a people for himself. He's adopting them. And he's doing it through propitiation, which talks about the work of Jesus on the cross. Through the work of his son to bear his wrath for their sin and then absorb that wrath and extinguish it and then rise again in victory over sin and the grave and all of its consequences and defeat sin and call a people for himself so that they would not just be now cleared of their guilt, but they would be sons and daughters of God. So the summary that Packer says, the whole message of the Bible is adoption through propitiation. In other words, becoming a father to a great multitude of people through the work of his son on the cross. And that's just a spelling out of what he is saying to Jacob and what he says to all of his people. Do not be afraid. I will go with you and I will bring you back home again. That's the message that I think we could summarize the whole Bible, that God will be with us. God has made us for his glory to make a people for himself and to be with those people and be their God and dwell with them forever and ever and ever. Listen to the progression. Just we're going to fly through some scriptures here. In the beginning, God creates Adam and Eve. Genesis 1 and 2, we see God communing with Adam and Eve in the garden. In Genesis 3, we see that communion, God with his people, broken and lost because of their rebellion. And they are exiled. They are forced out of God's presence and in fellowship with God. But then God reestablishes the relationship in, the, in, in seed form through Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I will be with you. I will make a family through you. And God makes a people for himself to reestablish that relationship. And then through the rest of the Old Testament, God is reminding his people of this promise. I will be with you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you in despair separated from me. So he says to Abraham, I will be with you. He says, we read at the end of Genesis to Jacob, I will be with you. He says to Moses before he stands before Pharaoh in Exodus 3, I will be with you. After Moses dies, he says to Joshua before he crosses the people over the river into the promised land. Do not be afraid. I will be with you. He says to the nation of Israel in Isaiah 43 verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. And then all of this, I will be with you promise reaches its pinnacle in Christ, whose name is Emmanuel, who means what? God with us. 
So God comes and is literally with us in the form of his son, Jesus. And Jesus lays down his life for us on the cross. And then after he defeats death and sin and the grave, before he is about to ascend to heaven, what does Jesus say at the end of Matthew 28, verse 20? He says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then a few weeks later, he pours out his Holy Spirit and God is now with his people. And there's coming a day, the Bible ends with Revelation. At the end of Revelation chapter 21, there's this beautiful picture that the Apostle John has of the end that isn't really the end, but it's just the beginning of never-ending eternity. And this is what John sees and what God says to him. And John says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Revelation 21 verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Friend, do you see that? God says at the beginning, I'll be with you. Fellowship is broken through sin. It didn't surprise God. It's not like the Trinity's up there saying, Oh no, what are we going to do now? But God, from the beginning of time, has had a plan to save a great multitude of people for himself so that he could be with them and through them show his glory. And he promises it century after century after century. He promises it to Jacob before he goes down to Egypt. He promises it to Israel in the rest of the Old Testament. He promises it to the church and he promises it to those who are in Christ even now. Fear not. I will be with you and I will bring you back. And we see that withness of God no more prominently than we see it on the cross. Where Jesus on the cross stands in our place for our sin. And this is what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 21, it says that God made him who knew no sin to actually be sin for us, to stand in our place, to be like us but yet without sin, to stand for us and with us and to bear. Friends, this is the gospel. Listen closely. If some of this has gone over your head, okay, but listen closely. This is the heart of the gospel. This is what it means to be a Christian, that God has come near to us to be with us, to be with his people. And Jesus God the Son comes and takes on flesh like us, but without sin, perfect. And then he, on the cross, lays down his perfect life and bears the wrath and the punishment that should have been ours. We have no hope to make ourselves right with God, but Jesus comes to be with us, to stand for us, extinguishes, bears, propitiates. That's the word that Packer uses. It's a biblical word in Romans 3. To bear, to absorb, to extinguish, to satisfy, to propitiate the wrath of God and extinguish it and remove it and then turn it into favor and grace and to adopt us and to give us what we need to put our faith and hope so that now, not because of our sin, we are no longer separated from God, but for those who are trusting in Christ, we can and now are with him, with him, forever and ever and ever. And he will be our God, and we will be his people. I end with this paragraph from this book called The King and His Beauty by a New Testament 
scholar and professor named Tom Schreiner. And I read it a few weeks ago and it just thrilled my soul and I think it encapsulates God with us and why we should not be afraid. This is what Schreiner says. We'll have it on the screen. About this world that God is recreating and making and that he's calling us to. He says, The world will be a new temple and a new garden where God dwells. All that belonged to Adam at the beginning will be theirs and more. It's talking about us who are in Christ. Think about that. Right? Think about that. All that belonged to Adam at the beginning will be theirs and more. Doesn't that put our little idolatrous pursuit of counterfeit stuff, just, it just kind of just makes that fade away. Those in the new creation know what it is like to be separated from fellowship with God. Oh, we know that. They know what it is to be redeemed from the horrific evil that dwells in their own hearts. They know and exult in the love of God demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ. They are safe in the heavenly city with its impregnable walls. The gates of the city can be left open for there is no enemy within or without who can conquer God's people now. They will see God's face in the person of Jesus Christ. They will see the king in his beauty and they will be glad forever because they will be with him. Friends, that's eternity for the Christian. And in the present, God says, do not be afraid. I will go with you and I will bring you back home again. Peter Kreft, the author, wrote a book called Heaven. I don't know much about Peter Kreft's theology. It may be completely whack. So if you read this book, and it's whack. Don't say, oh, Brad, endorse this guy. Don't do that. <laughs> but there's one little quote in there, and he talks about how, imagine if you could take like a little dream trip, and you could see eternity with Christ forever, and what awaits you. And then he says, then you'd be transported back into the reality of the muck and mire that you're going through. And he says, if you see what God has promised, and if you see the future would you not return fearless and singing? I, I think that's, we need to see that. Jacob, Christian, you're going to have to go down to Egypt, and maybe the rest of your life here is going to be hard and rough, but I will go with you, so do not be afraid, and I will bring you home. And every Sunday, we need to gather in this room and to see that clearly and let windshield wipers just kind of wipe away the mud and the fog of this fallen world so that we can see that God will be with us. Do not be afraid. I will go with you and bring you back home. And we want to see it every Sunday so that we can go out into this broken world and go out into it fearless and singing and we can sing because God has promised if we're trusting in Christ, do not be afraid. I will go with you and I will bring you back home again. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our hearts and our eyes and our minds now to the cross and the table and Jesus who made all of this possible through his work on the cross, may we gaze on the beauty of Christ 
May we gaze on what Christ did to bear our punishment and our sin and then defeat it through his death and his resurrection. And now because he is alive, he can command and call all of us to live and he can give us the very thing that we need, which is faith and repentance. And may we gaze at the beauty of the gospel and then may it embolden us so that we can return to our present situation fearless and singing. Because the God of all eternity, the God of the past and the present and the future says to us, do not be afraid. I will go with you and I will bring you home again. May we feast on the gospel and the promise of ever increasing fellowship with you. I pray God that you would do this for Christians and for any people in this room that are not yet trusting, would you make this so beautiful and so desirable and so irresistible that would draw them to turn away from trusting in themselves and turn in faith to Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as the ushers come to prepare to service, if you